Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat, and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA the FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I'm really excited for today's episode. We have a very special guest. We have Dr. Jordan Grummet joining us on the show today. He's also known as Doc G. So welcome to the show, Jordan. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Kat. I'm so happy to be here with you on the show. Yeah. So do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself for the listeners who aren't familiar with some of your work? Sure. So my basic story is my father died when he was 40 and I was seven years old and he was a physician. So I wanted to step right into his footsteps and become a physician too. It was my meaning and passion in life and I pursued it aggressively, became a doctor, started practicing and hit burnout fairly quickly and realized that this may not be the thing I want to do for the rest of my life. Maybe the sense of identity I had been getting from it didn't quite fit I started looking at my finances. My parents had modeled this beautiful, wonderful financial behavior. So I took care of my money. I saved a lot. I invested. I owned real estate. But I didn't know what it all meant. And could it possibly support me so that I could leave my job? In the quest to figure that out, one day I happened to get a phone call from Jim Dolly, the white coat investor. He sent me a copy of his book because I had a medical blog and he wanted me to review it. And I read his book and it was like, it gave me all the words, the vocabulary to understand financial independence. And I said, aha, I actually have enough money, especially if I'm careful with it. And so I started thinking, oh, I can leave medicine, which as opposed to being exciting, I actually had a panic attack and got really depressed for a bunch of months when I had to think about leaving this identity that was no longer serving me and yet was causing me pain and fear and anxiety about going back to work. I use that as a reason to delve into the personal finance world, which Jim Dolly kind of pushed me in that direction. I learned about financial independence. I eventually wrote a blog about it, started a podcast about it, and in the process started withdrawing from medicine. The one thing that I loved about medicine still was practicing hospice or end-of-life medicine. And so I kept at that And the strange thing is, as I did more hospice medicine on one side and then had my own podcast where we were trying to figure out the why behind money on the other side, I realized that my two worlds collide and actually the dying can teach us a lot about money and life. And that's kind of how I landed here today. That's amazing. There's so much information in that to unpack a little bit, but thank you so much for sharing the background. And yes, you mentioned that you also host a podcast called Earn and Invest. So I encourage all the listeners to certainly check that out if they haven't done so yet, for sure. Do you mind sharing why you think that at that point when you realize you're already financially independent, that instead of feeling excited and feeling maybe relieved, you did unfortunately have those symptoms of panic attacks as well as feeling more down and depressed? I had spent so much time looking at money as the goal, and then because I was getting burned out in medicine, 
I had really set this mirage up that if I just had enough money that I could leave medicine, everything would be good. Money would take care of all my problems and my life would be perfect. But when I got there, when I got to that moment, I realized that if I walk away from this identity of being a physician, the only identity that I had ever really clung to, the identity that connected to me to my father who had died when I was a little kid, if I all of a sudden was going to walk away from this, which is what I truly wanted in my heart, I had no idea who I was or who I could be. Like sure. the sense of purpose and identity in my life, I'm walking away from the only thing A, I've ever been good at, and B, the only thing that really gave me purpose. And I knew that it wasn't feeling good anymore, but I didn't know what I was going to step into. And think about this. You know, you become a doctor, it becomes your sense of importance. That's how people know you. But not just as a doctor, as a high money earner, right? So not only was I a doctor, but I made lots of money and that gave me a certain amount of prestige. And then all of a sudden I was just going to walk away from all, all those things that I had based my sense of self-worth on. And so that was scary. And uh, it really left me panicky a little bit about who am I? What is life really about? What's my purpose? And how come I hadn't thought about any of this until the moment when I realized I was financially independent? Sure. Yeah, that's amazing. I can imagine that many of us practicing in medicine really have that sense of identity with our careers. We picked a career where we feel like we're helping people and that we feel really passionate about truthfully. And there are so many people in my life as well as patients too that I feel like they're almost nervous to retire. They're afraid to retire because they're not retiring towards something. They're just retiring away from something and ending their career. So I think, like you mentioned, it's super important that people try to really figure out their purpose as well as other hobbies and things like that outside of medicine or their careers too. Yeah, I, I think it is. And and don't get me wrong. I think it's okay to be running away from something, right? There, there are jobs we don't like, we're not passionate about, we realize they're not really fulfilling our needs. But it's really disorienting if you don't have some idea of what your true goal is on the outside. And if you think money can be that goal, I'm telling you, you're mistaken. You might think that that's a great goal, but it's pretty much a mirage. It's the kind of thing we finally get there and we realize, oh, there's nothing really here except this false sense of security. And that really understanding what we want to do with our life means that we have to go past this mirage of money and start looking at, well, who do we want to be and what do we want to do? Yes, exactly. Money or a certain net worth is not a goal. It's a tool. So you need to figure out how you're going to use that tool to do what you want to do in life and pursue that purpose. Great. Yeah. And one thing I really try to tell people is it's a tool, but not the only tool. And that's also something we forget a lot. And I get this you know, said to me often, oh, it sounds so easy for you. You were burned out of medicine and you got into personal finance and all of a sudden you were financially independent. Of course, it was easy for you to start looking for purpose and identity then. You already had money. But I try to kind of remind people it is one tool of many tools. And especially when we're young, we have other tools. One is our energy. Like at the age of 49, I have a lot less energy than I did in my 20s. But we also have our knowledge, our connections, our passions. These are all tools. And Sometimes we get so stuck on the tool of money that we forget that some of those other things can actually help us out just as much. Exactly. Do you mind sharing what drew you to the field of hospice medicine? I feel like personally, I think that would be an incredibly difficult field to work in, and it has to take a certain special sense of person and personality and characteristics to work in that field. So I really commend you for doing all the hard work you do. But do you mind sharing what drew you to that? 
Sure. And thank you, first and foremost. Um, you have to remember that I grew up in the family with a father who died. So I didn't necessarily at that age, at seven, have that understanding of what that meant and what it meant for me and what, what life message was I supposed to get out of this? Because ultimately, we look back at our lives and we try to figure out what, what did we learn. So when I got to medical school, it was actually very natural for me to look at the places where people were dying, like in hospice, and think, hmm, this is something I know about. This is something I've experienced. And when I was seven, there was no one there to be with me. I mean, I had family, et cetera, but there was no one from from the medical field who sat down with me and said, this is what this is going to feel like. This is how you move forward. This is okay the way you're feeling. So my first week of medical school, it was the first thing I did as I went and signed up to be a hospice volunteer. And in some ways, I, I really think I was acting through some of that trauma of childhood, but in a positive way saying, okay, maybe I could help other people going through something that I went through that I didn't know how to deal with. I'm now an adult. I'm now going into medicine. This is kind of this wonderful way that I can take this experience and use it for some good. Funny enough, though, the volunteer work I did during medical school really ended my connection to hospice for many, many, many years. I went and eventually practiced general internal medicine where I took care of hospitalized patients and patients in the office, patients in nursing homes. So I had a lot of elderly patients. I did a lot of terminal care, but I became really good at it based on A, my connection to what happened to my dad and the volunteering, and B, the fact that I could use kind of these general internal medicine principles to really help people at the end of life. And a lot of what we do in internal medicine is sitting down with families if we do it right and saying, hey, you know, that cancer isn't getting better. Maybe it's time we stopped chemotherapy. So I came back to that much later in my career. The sad thing is maybe that's where I should have started my career. And maybe if I had, I wouldn't have burned out so much. But I wasn't really connected that sense of purpose and identity that I've now come to much later on. If I had, my career might have looked much different. Sure. I think that's great. I think that so many of us try different parts of medicine and see what we think we might like. And I have heard of some PAs, and I'm sure there are several physicians as well, that have really ended up in their dream specialty. They absolutely love it. They feel like they're in a unicorn job, but I feel like that that's really rare. So I think that many of us actually try something, see how we like it. And then if we don't care for it, then we try to see if there's something else that better fits us and that we enjoy more because it is so common to unfortunately burn out in medicine. Yeah. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing we can do that with within medicine. And a lot of people do it within their professions, but we don't necessarily always do that in life as a whole. We don't look at our whole being and say, hmm, I've tried this and it's not fulfilling my needs. Maybe I should move to the next thing. Yes. Especially in career. So a lot of us get stuck in these careers we don't like, and we don't have that idea that Maybe I can change careers. Maybe I can change what I do within this career. Maybe I can do something for fun on the side that makes me a little money so that I can do the same career that I'm still doing, but do a little bit less of it. Like, again, in medicine, we say, oh, I could jump from this specialty to that specialty, or I could do one type of work in a specialty versus another type of work in a specialty. But sometimes we don't look holistically and say, oh, maybe there's some other things I could do with my life if I was a little bit more purposeful. Yes, I love that. I think that's a great way to view life in general. And then one of the main reasons why you're on the show and joining us today is you wrote a book called Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. 
What made you want to write this specific book? And why do you think that this book was needed? So I had gotten burned out in medicine. I had really gone down the rabbit hole of personal finance and I loved it. And I got into the financial independence movement and there were so many people out there who were having these great discussions about how you become financially independent. How do you invest? How do you put money in a 401k or a Roth IRA? I felt like that conversation was really being well-managed. What I didn't see, which was what I was struggling with is, okay, I'm on my way to financial independence or I'm financially independent, but what now? Like, what does this mean? What do I do with this superpower to turn it into good, to make my life better and more contented? How do I help myself and help the people around me? And so I look at that as kind of the financial independence 201. The 101 is how do you get financially independent? I wanted to have the conversations that were the 201. So I started a blog and eventually a podcast called Earn and Invest, where we were having these conversations and we were struggling with some of these answers. Like, what does a good life look like? What do we want to accomplish? What does purpose and identity look like in our life? And strangely enough, I was finding the answers not in my podcast, but in my work as a hospice physician, because I was dealing with these patients who were being told that they had a terminal diagnosis. And yes, we spent a lot of time dealing with their symptoms, their pain, their nausea, making sure they had a safe place to be and they had caregivers and those kind of things. But after we started getting those things in place, what you do in hospice is you also do something called a life review where you help people work through some of the psychological and emotional issues of their life. And certainly it gives people also a chance to say, what might I want to accomplish in whatever little time I have left? Sure. And the dying, when they think about their lives, they're given almost permission to drop all the BS we all carry along with us, right? We carry with us societal needs. We carry with us what we see on Instagram and how we think we're supposed to live. We carry with us our family needs and what our family thinks or who they think we should be. When you're given a terminal diagnosis, right, it's horrible. But the one thing that's positive is it lets you for once truly think about what you want without boundaries, without asking permission. And I'm like, that's really powerful. And I was finding that these people who were dying were really getting in touch with what was meaningful to them and what they regretted and what they didn't have the courage to do. And I'm like, wow, what if we could do that much earlier? Like, isn't, aren't those the same questions I'm asking in the financial community? What has meaning for us? In a sense, turning it around, what would we regret when we're on our deathbeds? How can the dying help us understand that so that we can start doing these things now? So that instead of making money our goal, we can make it a tool that helps us reach some of these important life goals, helps us get more in touch with our purpose, identity, helps us make better connections with people. And I just felt like the dying had so much to say about that, that not only was important to other people who are dying, but also to the rest of us who are living from day to day and struggling. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I, I think that it's so challenging because how you talk in the book, some people feel like they're going to die younger. Some people feel like they're going to live to an old ripe age. And it's hard to try to find the balance between wanting to delay your gratification and build up your wealth and reach financial independence. But at the same time, practice the concept of YOLO, where you only live once and you need to learn to seize the day. And my husband and I have talked a little bit before about this on the podcast. I'm definitely a planner and he's definitely lived for the moment. And so he's all about the fun in the moment. And I'm like, but we need to save and invest. So we we do struggle with that in our relationship of finding the right balance because I think that both are great. Both have their purpose and both are needed. But at the same time, it's like you want to recognize that 
unfortunately, we don't know how long we're going to live. And both my husband and myself lost our dad at the age of 25 each, respectively. And so we recognize that you might not live until retirement, or if you do make it to retirement, you unfortunately might not be well enough and healthy enough to enjoy it. So how do you feel like the listeners can try to find that balance between delayed gratification, pursue financial independence, save and invest, but at the same time, enjoy their life on the way? There's really three things in the book that I want everyone to think about. The first is getting in touch with your sense of purpose, identity, and connections. I feel like we need to do that way before we look at our finances. That's step one. Sure. Step two is after you understand purpose, identity, and connections, then you start building a financial independence plan that makes sense based on that. After that, we then, all of us, I don't care how much you're in touch with your purpose. I don't care how well you think your path to financial independence is. Each and every one of us every day has to face this decision of spend today versus save for tomorrow. I don't care how well you know where you're going in the future or how well you've planned it out. That is a question that each and every one of us has to face all the time. If we knew when we were going to die, if I could look and say, I'm going to die in 10 years, it would be easy, right? I would spend a lot over the next 10 years until I had very little left, and then I would die. If I knew I was going to die in 20 years, again, I could plan and defer gratification up to the point where I knew I'd have enough to get to those 20 years, et cetera. The problem is we don't know. Because we don't know, we need some kind of proxy. My best proxy is, as opposed to talking about when it's going to happen because we don't know, let's talk about what we fear the most. So the big question I tell people to ask themselves is, are you afraid that you're going to die young and wealthy and not spend that wealth for your own sense of purpose? Or are you afraid that you're going to die old and run out of money and be broke? And if you can answer that question, we can then start figuring out how to toggle the continuum between YOLO and deferred gratification. Let me give you some specifics. My father died at the age of 40, but he also had a premonition he was going to die young. So he told my mom when he married her, he said, you know what? I think I'm going to die young. So let's say you're of that ilk where you're afraid that you're going to die young and wealthy and not ever be able to enjoy your wealth. If that's you, let's say you make 100% of your income, 50% goes to cover things you have no control over, right? You need transportation, housing, all that kind of stuff, right? That's 50% gone out the door. We know that's there. That leaves you 50% to do whatever else you need to do with. If you're one of those people who thinks you're going to die young, of that 50%, I would probably take 40%, put it in a YOLO fund, and use it today to live out your purpose, whether that's travel, whether that's taking extra vacation days. Really enjoy it because you're not worried about deferring gratification. You're worried that you're not going to make it there. I would still take that 10% and put it in a financial independence fund. Let it work for you. So let's look at the two scenarios based on that. If you are right and you die young, then you spent your money appropriately, right? You spent 40% of that savings to, to have fun today. You lived a pretty good life. What if you're wrong and you live to 80? Well, one, you're not going to be able to retire until much later, right? You're not going to do that early retirement thing at 40. But you might work till 70. But you're also still building up that YOLO fund. So while you're working to 70, you're taking tons of vacations. You're going to cool places. You're buying things that you really love. That's a pretty good life. That 10% you're saving will eventually build you enough in deferred gratification savings to fund whatever retirement you have left. So either way you win, sure. one way or another. Let's look at it the other way. Let's say you're worried about 
dying to a ripe old age, running through all your money and being broke. If that's your concern, then you're like me. You figure you have all the time in the world to pursue purpose, identity, and connections. You want to front load the sacrifice. You want to make a lot of money. 50% goes to living expenses. You want to put 40% into delayed gratification. Put that towards retirement. And then we'll use 10% as YOLO fund. We have to have some fun now, right? Here's the problem. If you're wrong and die young, then you died before you got to enjoy your money. I would suggest to you a few things. One is you enjoyed this idea that eventually you'd enjoy your money and that at least you you were living for that day because you thought you were going to live long. The other thing is you probably had money left over that you will leave to your family and take care of them. So it's not perfect. That's probably the worst of all scenarios. If you happen to be right and you do live to ripe old age and you front-loaded the sacrifice and you put 40% away every year towards deferred gratification and retirement, you're going to retire at 40 or 45 and you're going to have tons of years to live out your purpose, identity, connections, have fun, YOLO even more freely than you probably could when you were in the middle of your work life. So three out of four scenarios are pretty good. And one scenario, I don't know if we could have done much about that's what I think we need to do. So depending on what your fears are, you can toggle between yellow and deferred gratification, and that can help you decide what to spend now. And of course, it's not perfect. Some people are a little bit afraid of dying, but they're really afraid of running out of money. So maybe for them, it's a 20% goes to, you know, YOLO and 30% deferred gratification. You can play around the numbers depending with who you are as a person. But this at least gives us a concrete step to start being intentional about that as opposed to using utter guesses or doing 100% YOLO, which is no good because then you'll have nothing as you get older, or doing 100% deferred gratification, which is no good because then you're not going to enjoy today at all. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. I think that, like you said, no one has a crystal ball, but we just try to do our best with what we think that life will happen. And it is all about the journey. Even if you are trying to push for financial independence at an early young age, I still think that you need to enjoy life on the way. So regardless, try to find that balance for what works well for you and your life. Yeah. And one thing I didn't understand that I've cut, come to understand lately, and this comes from the book Die With Zero, which I've talked a lot about because I've talked to other people about it, but I haven't read it myself. But there are also seasons of your life that change over time. So even if you really want to defer gratification and take every single penny and put it towards you know early retirement... You know, for instance, hopefully, if you're lucky, you only get married once. So you're only a newlywed, hopefully, once in your life. And that tends to be when you're young, you don't want to spend all of that time working and not spending any time with your spouse. Let's say you have kids, like your kids are babies only once, they're toddlers only once. That season leaves. And if you spend all your time working on it, even if you really want to defer gratification, you think you're going to live a long life, you still don't want to miss some of those moments. So I think it's important for us to learn how to live today, even if we really are like those typical financial independence retire early practitioners who want to retire as fast as possible. You still have to slow down at times. Yes, I love that. I think that it's completely true that everyone has different seasons throughout their life and you need to evaluate where you're at and see what works well for you at that moment and recognize that it might change in a few years. Yeah, for sure. And then in your book, Taking Stock, you encourage the reader to perform various exercises to help them live a purposeful and meaningful life, such as considering if they were told that they would have only a limited amount of time to live and to consider writing their eulogy. Why do you think that these types of exercises are helpful for the readers to ponder? 
Well, I think to really free ourselves up to think about purpose, identity, and connections, we almost have to shake ourselves into it, right? We have to remove the haze of everything society and we ourselves have put on top of our psyche to really think about what we truly want. I mean, there's a lot fighting us when it comes to thinking about what we truly want. We have society. We have our own inner laziness. And I don't want to call it laziness, but we are afraid to think of what we really want because it's really hard work. Like doing purpose and identity work is incredibly difficult. And in a sense, I think it's really scary for people because when you start really working on purpose and identity, what you're really saying is life is finite. I might die and not get there. So I better start working on this today. And we don't like to do that. We don't like to put the frame of there's a limited amount of time to do things we want to do. So instead, we put it off. So, you know, doing this process where you visualize your own terminal illness really shakes you into making some of these decisions and thinking about it now, as opposed to waiting to some time and it's too late. And let me tell you, there are a lot of people I take care of who are dying who do find some resolution of those big life issues. They start thinking about it because they've been given a terminal issue, terminal diagnosis, and they get in contact with that person they lost contact with, or they go that place they always wanted to go. Like you can have the last minute plot twist that fixes everything. And we certainly try to give that to people in hospice if we can, but I'd much rather have you start working on those things when you're younger so you don't need a last minute plot twist. And so to get there, I think some of these visualization techniques really help. Sure. I can imagine that it's very difficult, like you said, to find the time, the bandwidth, the energy to sit down and really contemplate that. And I think, you know, some people just can't really think that far ahead too. So I think that it's more challenging for some versus others, but I think that it is important to try to do that work and see what changes you can make right now to really pursue Mm -hmm. and prioritize those things in your life that truly matter. I think it's important. And I think we need to do that work now. The mistake I made and the mistake I think a lot of us make is we put our finances first. And my argument in this book and in life is maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should really put that purpose, identity, connections work, at least consider it, put the money stuff aside, take some time, consider it, and then we can bring the money stuff back in and have it serve us better. Yeah, definitely. And you've touched on this a little bit already, but can you describe what you meant in the book by the money mind meld? So the money mind meld is this haze that money causes. So we use a money as a goal instead of a tool. And because we look at it as a goal, it kind of shimmers and shines and gets our attention. And our brain stops thinking about the other stuff, the stuff actually that money is supposed to help us get towards, like purpose, identity, and connections. What do we want to do with our lives? Instead of concentrating on that, we concentrate on money because it's just this really easy goal. Like, I can figure out how to make more money. If financial independence is my goal, I can think, I can side hustle, I can get a better paying job, I can work more hours. These are concrete things and they're simple solutions. They may not be easy, maybe hard to make a lot of money, but you know how to go about it. But if I look at you and say, let's really better define your sense of purpose and identity, it's hard, it's painful. And people don't want to do that. And so it's much easier to get confused by this money mind meld. It's that haze that we put our mind in when we think about money and money only and allow it us to sap all our energy away from actually concentrating on the more important things. Sure. 
And when we are trying to focus on the important things and make time and space for them, I really love that you talk about the concept of the art of subtraction in your book, because I feel like, like you said before a little bit, how it not only can apply to our careers, but many areas of life. Can you share what that concept is a little bit more in detail, as well as what the benefits are of pursuing that? So what I've kind of realized, and a lot of this has to do with time. We talk about time, especially in the personal finance world, like it's a commodity, like we can buy or sell or trade. We can't do anything about time. Time passes. And the only thing we might be able to do is have better control over what activities we put in those time slots, right? So time passes. You can call these time slots days or months or years, whatever you want to call them. But the only control we have is to put things in those time slots that are meaningful for us. And our goal in life should be to fill as many of those time slots with purpose, identity, and meaning and get rid of as many of those time slots or at least substitute other things in for all those things we hate doing or cause us pain. So that brings us to the art of subtraction. The idea is we should look at our lives now, whether it's your work life or your social life or your family life, and we should start looking at what are the things that really don't serve us that we don't really like, and how can we subtract them? How can we start peeling away the things we don't like in life, start taking those time slots that are filled with things we don't like, and start filling them with things we do like? Now, for me, I came from a really privileged place where I realized I was financially independent, and then I could look at my work environment, the time I was spending at work all week, and I could slowly peel away the things I didn't like. So I was getting tired of being in private practice, so I got rid of that. Then one day I was getting tired of working in nursing homes, so I got rid of that. As I got rid of nights and weekends and being on call, what I was left with is being a consultant for a hospice company. I was subtracting out the things I didn't like, and I was adding in the things that did have a sense of purpose for me. In this case, it was hospice part-time, and then I had all these open time slots, and I started doing other things that really were ideal good for my sense of purpose and identity, like podcasting and public speaking and writing, things that really fulfilled me. And I think that's our goal. Subtract out the things that aren't fulfilling you and add in more things of purpose, identity, and connections. Now, people will look at me and say, wow, that's a real privileged place. You are already financially independent. Of course, you could use the art of subtraction. But I'd like to argue that we should be utilizing this technique when we're much younger. So money is a tool. It's an important tool, but it's not our only tool. So a lot of people are struggling in their 20s and 30s. They're making enough money to just put dinner on the table. They're exhausted, and they look at someone like me and say, I don't have time to subtract. I don't have the ability. I don't have the power. And here's my argument. Hopefully, when you're young, you might not have the tool of money, but you might have other tools. You might have energy, right? When you're 20, you have more energy than when you're 49. You might have connections. You might have passions. You might have community. How can we start using those other tools to help us not only subtract what we don't like out of our life, but add in what we do like? So here's an example. Let's say you're 22, you just got your first job, and you're making just barely enough to cover your costs. You're working eight to six in a job that you don't particularly like. And so you're looking at me and you're saying, Jordan, how am I going to subtract out this job I don't like? I need this money. What am I going to do? Well, when you're 22, you have a little bit more energy. Maybe you have a little more time on the weekends. You're working eight to, eight to six Monday through Friday. What if you started a side hustle on Saturday night that was something you were passionate about, something that fulfilled your sense of purpose and identity, something you really liked doing? Three hours every Saturday, and let's see what happens in six months. I figure one of two things happens. 
Let's say your side hustle, your passion project, you make zero money in. Well, after six months, at least you've now added in purpose, identity, and connections. You've added in something good to your life that's meaningful, right? So you've filled at least one little time slot with good stuff. You didn't do anything about that eight to six, all those time slots. You don't like how they're filled, but at least you added in something good. But let's just say that side hustle generates a little bit of income. Maybe you then could turn the eight to six into a nine to five. So you subtracted two hours a day, five days a week. And maybe that gives you a little more energy to work on that side hustle. Maybe that side hustle grows and now f- covers 50% of your income. Maybe you can start doing that eight to six, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday only. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you work on your side hustle. The idea is subtract out what you don't like, add in what you do, use whatever tools are available. For me at the age of 45, and I had been working as a doctor and investing, I had a lot of the tool of money, so I could use that to subtract. Maybe in your 20s, you use other tools. How can you subtract out the stuff you don't like and add in the stuff that gives you a sense of purpose? And I think that's the process we should be living our whole life. Yeah, I think that you touched on so many great nuggets and that there are so many areas, especially with work too, if you are feeling burnt out, that you can try to subtract different things in your life. So for me personally, I recognize that I do not care for being on call or working evenings or holidays. So I purposefully work in outpatient medicine and don't pick those types of specialties or shifts where you have to do those types of things. And then I also know that I am not a fan of commuting. So although listening to podcasts helps commuting be a little bit more enjoyable, I recognize that I really like either telemedicine work or um, finding jobs that are really close to home to cut out that pain point in my life. And even at work too, the EMRs can be really clunky and stuff like that. But if you can figure out some dot phrases or things like that to just get rid of all these tedious tasks that just fill up your day and make you stay late after hours and charting and things like that. So I encourage people to really take inventory of their life. And also, if you are purposeful about your finances, you can probably see where maybe you're spending a lot more money in different areas. And maybe you could even cut back on hours if you were to reallocate and rebudget some of your money in different areas too. And here's what I love about what you're saying there is, so you can subtract within a job by exactly what you're talking about, finding a job closer to home, finding a job that has less call. You can toggle that way, but then you're also doing this podcast, which I believe is probably a passion project for you. Maybe this podcast creates some money. Maybe this podcast creates a gig as a public speaker. Maybe you write a book or a course based on this podcast And maybe some of that starts generating revenue. And you can say, aha, I only want to do the PA thing four days a week. Or, aha, I'm not even going to consider a job that has call anymore because I have a little bit of economic power here. I could even take a little bit of a pay decrease. And then, again, the same thing with your finances. Maybe if I stop getting this subscription, maybe if I start cooking at home, I add in something that's purposeful to me, that's meaningful to me at home, and I can subtract it from work because I don't need to make as much money. It's all about the intention. And I just think sometimes we forget to be intentional about these things because we aren't thoughtful enough about what's purposeful in our life. We put that process off. And so, of course, we don't know what to do because we're not even, we don't know what the goal is. Yes, that's great. I think that you read my mind a little bit with some of those things and have already been fortunate enough to be able to cut back on some hours and certainly 
getting rid of a leased car freed up some cash where we were able to do that and paid for a car outright. And so there were definitely many little tweaks that we've been able to do. And like you said, it, it is from a place of privilege, but I'm doing my absolute best to be very intentional throughout my life and spend time and energy on those things that I value and that I feel like can be helpful for others too, as well as for myself and my husband and family too. So I think that that's all wonderful. I just want to make sure people don't think this is only something you do when you're privileged, when you're an attending physician making six figures and living the life. Yes, no question, it's easier when you have some cash reserves because money is a tool. This, there are lots of other tools, and sometimes being intentional allows us to do these things way earlier. Wonderful. And then you've touched on how you have also experienced burnout working as a physician in medicine. And certainly I have experienced burnout as well. And it was only amplified by the COVID pandemic, as I'm sure many other providers out there can relate to. Do you mind sharing what your thoughts are about why or how pursuing financial independence can treat and or prevent burnout for providers? So it's interesting. I used to think that financial independence was the answer to burnout, right? Because it was that simple trade-off, make enough money, leave medicine, you're good. Now, as I get older, I realize that it's not that simple. Like, as opposed to looking at financial independence as the get out of jail card, I think we actually have to be more thoughtful about purpose, and that's our get out of jail card. So it's true you can make enough money and leave medicine, but maybe the better answer, something that I learned, is maybe the better answer is realigning medicine so that it feels more purposeful for you and that you're doing what you want to do today. And for some people, financial independence just gives you options and independence and possibilities, and that relieves the stress to such an extent that you don't actually mind doing some of what you do. There was a guy named Jeff who's a radiologist and had a blog called The Happy Philosopher. And he was burning out of medicine the way I was and he started down the financial independence rabbit hole, realized that after a certain number of months, he or a certain number of years, he could be financially independent and leave medicine. So instead, he decided to pivot and said, well, I can be completely out of medicine in four years and then live a totally perfect life, or I can go part-time, which gives me a huge amount of breathing room, lets me start enjoying what I'm doing again, and maybe I can't retire for eight or nine years. And that was his plan, but something funny happened. Just building that sense of space and choices felt so good to him, he eventually didn't even bother going part-time. Because for the first time in his life, he's like, oh, I have choices. I can navigate the ship. I have some power here. And when the frustration left, he realized, oh, I can keep going full time. Maybe I won't do any extra shifts anymore. Maybe I'll pass on that weekend or night shift and let someone else get the extra pay, right? Maybe I'll pass up some economic opportunities, but I don't feel the need to go half time anymore. And that was a huge revelation for him. And I think we need to start looking for those wins if we really want to fight off burnout, because most of us went into medicine because it was this wonderful, beautiful profession where we could help people. And most of us still want to help people, even if we're burned out. So the question is, are there some better answers? Are there some ways that we can feel in control? I think financial independence is one of those answers. 
but not necessarily so we can leave medicine, but better yet, so we have better choices. So we can subtract more so that we can then add in those things that are purposeful. For me, hospice medicine is purposeful. If I had discovered that at the beginning of my career, I probably never would have burned out. It just took me a while to get there. Sure. As I'm sure is very common for many people practicing medicine out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, like you said, we can feel like there's so many pressures and we're feeling kind of like stuck and that the organizations or leadership put so many pressures upon us and require so many things. But I think pursuing financial independence can allow you to have that freedom and flexibility to practice more autonomy where you can often even just have the courage to speak up and try to negotiate what you want and what your wishes are to practice that art of subtraction in your career. Yeah, and autonomy is so important. And when autonomy is taken away, which a lot of doctors feel in the current environment, it's hard to feel good about what you're doing. Certainly. Well, Jordan, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the show today. I think that the book Taking Stock has so many words of wisdom in there, and I will definitely include a link to it in the show notes for the listeners. Do you feel like we covered everything that you wanted to talk about? Are there any other pieces of advice that you'd have for the listeners today? No, I think we have. And the idea behind Taking Stock is if you are struggling with the role money plays in your life today, that is the question we're trying to answer with this book. And I think the dying can give us a lot of great basic information about how to think of life today. Where does money fit in? Whether you are struggling to put dinner on the table today or whether you were like I was in your 40s, finding that you had accumulated money but not knowing what to do with it. This book strives to answer that question for you. Wonderful. Thanks again, Jordan. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.